you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the March 1st, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Tonight, we devote our show to Women's History Month, honoring two trailblazers taken too soon, Ivy Bottini who we lost on Thursday, February 25th, at the age of 94, and Jean Cordova, who in 2016 died of cancer at the age of 67. Born at the dawn of the baby boom generation, Jean Cordova has always been ahead of her time in catching the next wave of social change and taking a visionary leadership role in making a difference. I've known her partner, one of the producers of KPFK's Feminist Magazine, for years, but never had the opportunity to meet Cordova, the legendary activist, writer, publisher, organizer, and butch icon, until now. I'm Jean Cordova, author, activist of some 40 years. My first book was when I was a free press columnist. It was called Sexism, It's a Nasty Affair, a collection of essays about the early days of women's liberation. And then the second book was a memoir about my years in the convent. It was called Kicking the Habit. The latest book is When We Were Outlaws, A Memoir of Love and Revolution. And it covers a period of time between 1974 and 1977, Those three years, I was an investigative reporter for the Free Press, the L.A. Free Press, which was the predecessor of the L.A. Weekly, but far more radical. I was also the publisher of The Lesbian Tide, which was a national feminist lesbian magazine. In this memoir, I backtracked to several big things that happened in 71 and 73, and it's about the politics of the time. As a Free Press reporter, I interviewed Angela Davis and Emily Harris of the Symbionese Liberation Army, and a number of people. I was always off in the field. And so the book tells the political story of what were the predominant issues in the mid-'70s and early-'70s, particularly in the gay liberation and lesbian movement and the New Left. For Jean, the road to coming out was not only rough, but it took a detour through a nunnery. My parents were pretty darn bigoted and uh, very Catholic. So it was sort of natural that I go into a convent being raised 
in a very Catholic home. But there are two factors. One is I thought I was very much in love with God and Mary and all that. And I probably was. And the second thing is, subconsciously, I really wanted to avoid marriage. And that was the only alternative that seemed to be there. This was before women started working in careers. At that point, Jean was still in the dark about her sexuality. Being in a strong Catholic family, I didn't even hear the word. So I didn't know. I actually came out in the convent. That's why I say subconsciously, I wanted to be in a world of women. So that's why a lot of lesbians do go into the nunnery, mostly unconsciously, but they want to avoid the world of men and are attracted to the world of women. And it seems like a a real natural choice. And then if you're in love with God and praying all the time, and I was, then it fits. And it's, it's acceptable by your parents. After she accepted she was a lesbian, Jean left the convent and really began her journey. I had just come out and I was looking desperately for other gay people. So I looked up in the telephone book and I remembered from high school that gay-looking women were on softball teams. So I joined a softball team. But after a couple years, I got very bored, and I was in college, and on the team they called me the college kid, the one going to UCLA, and it just wasn't enough for me. So I got really lonely, and I was saying, aren't there any political or literary lesbians? There must be some somewhere in the world, and I need to find them because I was very immersed in social work and working in Watts. And so when I found the DOB quite accidentally, and I walked down those basement steps, it was in the bottom of a church, I remember seeing, oh, here are organized women sitting around talking about homosexuality. They're actually talking about it, and they're talking about the government, and they're talking about dreams about someday not living this way in a basement. And I was thrilled. I just bought the whole package, and I thought, that's where I need to be, and I stayed. The DOB, or Daughters of Belitis, was the first lesbian rights organization in the United States. And in the early 1970s, Jean Cordova became involved with a number of L.A.'s early gay and lesbian organizations. In the beginning, there was nothing, sort of like Genesis. Then I met Morris Kite and a handful of Gay Liberation Front men, one woman, and I had just found the daughters. I was president of the L.A. branch, and we kind of fell into talking with each other. The Women's Center, feminism, had just come to L.A. in 1970 also. So as far as L.A., both the gay movement and the women's movement were kind of born at the same time in L.A. They started at different times in New York, the women's movement in 66 and the gays in 69. But by the time we got it out here, I was a lesbian feminist by then. I'd left DOB. And we start talking, Morris Kite, he was a veteran. He was like 50 years old, which seemed to us 20-year-olds as ancient. And he said, and even the women's movement said, what about building a counterculture? What about making making things, organizations, We didn't think about institutions because that was too establishment. But we said, why don't we make places so we can go and all gays can go to these places and we won't have to live in the straight world. We can live in a world of women or a world of queers. So 
Morris began making up organizations, and a couple years later, I began also. And like he started the Gay Community Services Center, which is still over there now, and uh, Christopher Street West, the Gay Pride Organization, and Stonewall Democratic Club. And that's just the mid-'70s. Those were his babies, and I joined him in a lot of them. Then I started making my own babies, and I guess the first one was the Lesbian Tide magazine. She was my first and eldest child. It started really small, like a DOB newsletter, but it grew into a national voice, and people began asking for it in college towns. That was the interesting thing. Um, I began to notice we'd have, you know, like 25 subscribers from Ann Arbor, Michigan, and then 20 subscribers from a place called Durham, South Carolina. And after a while, it occurred to me, these are all the college towns. And the paper grew and grew, and it became one of the two largest during that decade. This is Steve Pride, and we're talking to author-activist Jean Cordova. In uh, 74, I started working as a journalist at the Free, at the L.A. Free Press. I came aboard as a columnist because I was a Chicana and a feminist and a dyke. And Art Kunkin, the publisher, thought, oh, that covers three of my bases, you know. But then I morphed into being a human rights editor and an investigative reporter. Luckily, the later publisher, Penny Grenoble, had a lot of faith in me. And so she sent me to interview some really famous people. And it was in the 70s when the SLA, Sibionese Liberation Army, kidnapped Patty Hearst the summer of 75, and everybody was looking for her. And I was more interested in Patty Hearst's sidekick, Emily Harris, because I think Patty was just a bourgeois lady who happened to get kidnapped because of who her father was. But Emily Harris and Bill Harris, I wanted to know what turned college kids my own age, we were all the same age, like 25, 26 years old, into... A revolutionary struggle that included picking up guns. I thought I was in revolutionary struggle and studying Marxism and doing my bit, but I was wondering whether or not I would go into armed struggle. Would I pick up a gun to defend or to further my beliefs? Would I blow up something? Another of her Freep interviews was with controversial Black Panther anarchist Angela Davis who Jean suspected was hiding something. When I met and interviewed Angela Davis, she seemed so obviously, this was 74, she seemed to me so butch and so lesbian. And so I really tried to get her to come out as gay. But she wasn't buying it then. Becoming well-known for her hard-hitting interviews with Emily Harris and Angela Davis led to not only a fanatic following for her column, but an occasional actual fanatic. So every week, uh, it seemed, people then would start calling up and asking for Cordova. That's how I met my Nazi. He was uh, the local captain of the Almani Nazi party, only he was more into armed struggle. So he had placed a couple bombs. And then toward the end of my interviews, he gets killed, and then the FBI comes chasing me into the free press office. So I had some pretty wild adventures. And I also learned a lot politically from all those people. And Jean was there for the start of the Los Angeles Gay and Lesbian Center. 
Now a major institution with a $40 million annual budget, its origins were grassroots and its birth difficult. The motivations to starting the center is mostly Don Kilhefner and Morse Kite and John Platania. And their original motivation was to get these street kids coming out of the Midwest who are committing suicide and running away from home. Back then, there was a lot more running away from home and I think less suicide. That's the way it seemed at the time. So Morris and Don wanted to collect all these kids and give them food and jobs and a bed overnight and help them get started in life. And so that was the dawn of Gay as Social Service Center. But we really needed it back then. There were just hundreds or thousands coming out to their families and then being thrown out. So I think that motivation was probably good. It was odd for me to see my mentor, who was an activist, begin to turn into a social services social worker. And I struggled with that and didn't agree with it. And then in terms of people of color or women, the early center, these guys were not very open and didn't understand lesbians at all. And people of color were nowhere to be seen in the early days. And in the summer of 1975, those differences became too much. And it almost brought an end to the fledgling L.A. Gay and Lesbian Center. What happened is the government gave the center $939,000, almost a million bucks, in 74 for the Alcoholism Center for Women. So three-year grant, so 300000 a year. So the center went out and hired, they had to hire women to run the alcoholism program for women, which still exists today. It's called the Alcoholism Center for Women on Alvarado. So they went out and hired a bunch of us, but they didn't realize that we were feminist. We were gay women, but we had also become feminist. And when we got to GCSC, which was the the gay center, it was extremely male-dominated, and there was no way to work yourself up into any administrative posts. There were no lesbians. There's one lesbian on the board of directors, none in management. And so the strike was protesting those things. And it was the time when the center male board could have opened up their arms and welcomed feminist lesbians. And that was the challenge. They could have, but they didn't. They didn't want feminist. They didn't want anything that looked like it was collective or consensus. They wanted to own it, and they did own it. And the strike was about their ownership on the handful of people versus allowing feminism to come and be part of the center. The women's movement was very young, and it was the gay movement's opportunity to accept feminism, uh, even among the men. I mean, nothing wrong with men becoming feminists. And I kind of thought my mentor, Morris Kite, was, I guess because he was so politically advanced in so many ways, like racism and stuff, that I thought he would naturally be a feminist. But they turned us down repeatedly. They fired 16 of their employees that day in May, most of us lesbian feminists. And that's what caused the great strike. We went out and protested. They denied us unemployment. And it's really a story of the women's movement and the gay movement 
the beginnings and them clashing, the first major clash in L.A. of those two movements. Jean went on to start the first Gay and Lesbian Yellow Pages, and at an age when others retire, is still an active LGBTIQ organizer. So what advice does she have for the new generation of activists? That activism is important and critical for all ages, whether it's Occupy Wall Street now, uh, which I love, or some other movement in five years, that activism should be part of, I think, everyone's life, that it's very enhancing. You meet people, you learn about issues, you stay current. And the second thing, I think, is that trying to keep a balance in your life between your work and your relationship is a struggle for activists and others. This has been a conversation with Jean Cordova. Her new book is called When We Were Outlaws, a memoir of love and revolution. For more information, visit her at jeancordova.com. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Jean, Jean, the roses are red And all of the leaves have gone green And the clouds are so low You can touch them and so Come out to the meadow Jean Cordova is survived by her wife, Lynn Ballin, one of the hosts of KPFK's Feminist Magazine. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this quick break. Behind Women's History Month, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Prior to the 1970s, the topic of women's history was almost entirely absent from general public consciousness. So in 1978 in California, the Education Task Force of the Sonoma County Commission on the Status of Women initiated a Women's History Week and chose the week of March 8th to coincide with International Women's Day. The celebration was well received and in 1981, supporters convinced Congress to declare that same week as Women's History Week. In 1987, Congress expanded the celebration to the entire month of March. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Pat Fishback. This is Patricia Nell Warren, author of The Front Runner, the Fancy Dancer, The Beauty Queen, The Wild Man, Harlan's Race, Billy's Boy, Lavender Locker Room, The Last Centennial, One is the Sun, and My West. <laughs> and you are listening to I Am Are You. I Am Are You. I Am Are You. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you are listening to IMRU Radio. One of Jean Cordova's dear friends in the struggle was Ivy Bottini. They had a long history together of making history, always standing side by side, seeing where our community needs were, what issues needed action, starting organizations, making change, making trouble together, actively supporting each other's campaigns and events. Ivy Boutini died 
at the age of 94. To legendary activist and artist Ivy Bettini, feminism and lesbian rights go hand in hand, an opinion not shared by many feminists in the 1960s, including one Betty Friedan. Oh yeah, I mean, she wanted me dead. I mean, <laughs> it were, were you the lesbian that, that she was targeting? Was it you or were there a few others? Well, there probably were a few <laughs> others, but I was the first thorn in this side in the New York chapter. In 1969, I did a, a panel when the chapter formed and as we moved, I'd meet these lesbians, but they were all in the closet, deep in the closet, scared out of their minds. And I thought, well, that's not right. So I put a panel together, and there were 15 of us. I was the moderator. And uh, the title of the panel was, Is Lesbianism a Feminist Issue? And the reaction, I mean, there, there were two lesbians on the panel, Barbara Love and Sidney Abbott, who wrote uh, Sappho's Right Arm Woman. They were the only two lesbians on that panel. All the other women were straight. I was, I was still married. Did they know that you were a lesbian? Did you know you were a lesbian? Well, I knew I was a lesbian. I didn't know how to get there. Right. So you were still in that coming out to yourself. Yeah. Figuring out the logistics of it. Yeah. Phase. Yeah. And not trying to hurt my family. It didn't work. We used to have a meeting once a month. And I changed it to once a week. You can't have a movement once a month. You know, it's just, it's insane. That would be a crawl. Yeah, right. And so one night was the program meeting, and I always advertised the program in the New York Times under things to do or whatever the heading was at the time. And normally we would get, you know, at the regular meeting, the members, maybe we'd get 40 members would come, and then we'd get maybe another 10 from outside. Mm -hmm. This one, where I advertised is lesbianism a feminist issue, that place was packed. There were over 300 people that showed up in the basement of that church. And I went, hmm, I think I... Mean, I, I, I think I recall reading about this, that this was really a pivotal moment. What happened after that was just amazing to me. Uh, the, the, the feedback that came back was that we were all lesbians on the panel because why would you want to talk about it? You know, why? And then Betty Friedan was furious. She was just, in, my ass was in a sling from that point on. <laughs> and she was determined to get rid of me and the elections were coming up. Normally we had 40 or 50 people at the elections. But at this election, there were, there were like a couple hundred people showed up. And I had been warned by Barbara Love and Sidney Abbott. Barbara called me one day and said, Ivy, for Dan's out to get you, I have about 30 or 40 lesbians that will join, you know, save your back, because they still had time to join. It had to be 30 days ahead. And so I said, no, I no, no, I, I, I don't want you to do that. I trust... I trust the membership. I've worked with them since the founding. I trust them. Well, the night of the election, paper members came. There had been this horrible telephone campaign that Fredan and her crew generated. Jackie Sabias, who is the head of uh, Veteran Feminists of America, she denies it, but Barbara said, Jackie Sabias is making these horrible phone calls about you, blah, 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 blah. 
So at that, at that meeting, you could bullet vote. And so there were 15 of us on the steering committee and board. All of my people, when they realized what was happening, they all stepped down, so the only person they could vote for was me and a, a, a woman I'd never seen by the name of Vivian or Violet or Viola, I don't know. And she beat me by, by seven votes because it was totally stacked. I love the fact that you were a lesbian crusader even before you were really a lesbian completely. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I did get elected to the board. Whoopee. And um, so I went to the first board meeting and I read them the riot act and said, I cannot serve with you because you've known me for how many years? And now I'm this monster. So I'm out of here. So I resigned. And I remember I would go to work and I would come home and I would sit in this rocking chair I had in the corner of the room and I would sit there and she go, what the hell happened? Is this issue so volatile, so heinous that, that they would do this? That for Dan, who traveled by this time, she's traveling all over, would take the time to zero in on me. I realized that lesbianism is not only a feminist issue, but it's the bottom line. I mean, it, it is what keeps women in their place by fear. So, so if you can't stand being called a lesbian or thought of as a lesbian, you're never going to be free. Never, ever going to be free. You'll always be able to be controlled by this issue. And well, I wonder if, conversely, that is the same is true for straight men. As long as you can weaken a man by calling him a faggot, that he is beholden to some kind of artificial sense of masculinity. Yeah, that's why I say men should yeah. join the women's movement. Well, you know, I created this chart years ago, probably 68, because I did a lot of speaking. And so I created this chart, and I, I don't do it. I just put the headings up there, and then the audience actually yells out words. Like the first, the first column is feminine, and I get them to yell out all the stereotype words about feminine. And I go, now, don't be shy. Nobody's going to hate you. <laughs> you know, what are the, and, and there's this long list of dependent, um, mothers, uh, nurture, blah, 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 sexy. You know, all these. And then the second column is masculine. And again, stereotype, bush, virile, strong, provider, father. You know, all the power words. Then I do gay man, and I get all the feminine words. And then I do masculine, and I get all the, um, oh, how is it? It goes feminine, masculine, oh, lesbian. <laughs> that one. <laughs> I forgot that one. And lesbian, I get all the masculine words. And I'm, I'm not creating this. you think this. would be a good thing. Yeah, you know, they're creating it. You know, I talk about that you're actually looking at the, the germ of sexism. This is Abby Dees and I'm talking with legendary artist and activist, Ivy Bettini. You were talking about putting the words on a wall and what do people think about. So I'd like to do something a little similar to you. Sure. With you, <laughs> not to you. And see, <laughs> and oh, go ahead. Just, just what comes to your mind when you think of these words? Dyke. Strong woman, very 
Doesn't take any guff. That word doesn't have any negative association for you? No, I love the word. AIDS? Um, Double-edged sword. Uh, one was horrible, and the other side of it created the large organizations. And although I think they have shut out the grassroots, if they could wake up and encourage the grassroots, it, it would be great. But they haven't done that. As far as the movement goes, as far as human beings go, it was not just a loss for our community, but it's a loss for humanity because we are the creative people. And we will not be putting that out there. How, how many have died? I mean, how many died of AIDS that, that probably 50% would have contributed something meaningful to society? And we'll never have that chance. Pride. It has become a weak word because we have overused it. It's a great word, but over time, I think it's lost a lot of its meaning because we use it for everything. I, I wear pride t-shirts all the time. Um, this says pride on the back. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I am a walking billboard. <laughs> pride has lost a lot of meaning for me because I think it's been softened because mm -hmm. we use it just about everything. Same-sex marriage. I think it's wonderful for the people who want it. I personally think the assimilation is going to wipe out our, com our community as a community because the assimilation is already going on and we will be going back in the closet. Really? Yeah. Why do you think that? I don't, I don't think we will think of it as going back in the closet because the minority group does not move into the mainstream and then the mainstream becomes the minority group. It works the other way around. We move into the mainstream. We're going to be the mainstream. We will slowly let go of our, I think, uh, anger, of our commitment, and we will be the Joneses, <laughs> except there'll be two women and two men. It sounds like you're saying we'll lose our specialness. Yes, I, I believe we will. And what do you think is special about us? Well, our creativity... Um, it's, it never ceases to amaze me. Our service to the world, I just think our brains wire differently. And I think we think differently. If you're part of the, the world that, you know, you've never felt discriminated against, you know, maybe you had to stand too long on a line, that pissed you off. But, you know, but if you're a part of a group that has been on the outside and persecuted, I think your brain makes shifts um, to, for protection and strategies and how to get through your life, you know, which is a dangerous cause. There are some people who choose to live with a woman or live with a man, but for the most part, we're born this way. I mean, if I could have avoided all the pain I had in my life with my family, my kids, the regrets I have on how they were hurt, do you think I would have done it? If I had a choice, I knew that was going to happen, do you think I would have done it? Probably not. We see things differently. You may look at that and say that's blue, and I look at it and say it's purple. 
it's just a different way of looking at life. And I think what we contribute moves society forward. Do you think that's true for all minority groups? Anyone that's on the outside looking in? I think so. What does the word tolerance mean to you? I hate it. You know, I hate the word tolerance. I think it's an insult. I think it keeps um, discrimination going because it's, it's not an acceptance. Tolerance is not acceptance. And are you looking for acceptance? Yes and no. <laughs> I'm not looking for acceptance that we lose ourselves. And that's, that's what I think the marriage thing is going to eventually do. But I am looking for acceptance and safety for LGBT. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't understand me, I really don't give two hoots. <laughs> but if you are going to go kill me, then I care. Yeah. I, think, I think, and even acceptance isn't even a, a good word. Acceptance means we've finally come to some understanding and from where we were and, okay, I accept it. So I don't know what Detente. word. Detente? Pardon? Detente? I'm thinking of words. I'm thinking of, yeah. you know, because I don't necessarily want to accept people who have a belief system that's very contrary to my own. I mean, I don't want to be forced to accept them. Right. But I do expect a certain common respect. Maybe it's just respect. Does that seem like a good word? It's something you have to do. It isn't automatic. Yeah. Um, I did that painting, I Am. That's what I want. I just want I Am for everybody. No apologies, no excuses. Just I'm alive and I am. To learn more about Ivy Bettini, you can visit her website at ivybettini.com. That's I-V-Y-B-O-T-T-I-N-I dot com. This has been Abby Dees. back with more of Abby's interview with Ivy Bottini after this quick break. Don't touch that dial. Mercedes de Acosta, temptress of women, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Mercedes de Acosta was born in New York in 1893. Because her mother wanted a boy, she dressed her as such, calling her Raphael. A stint at a convent school in France would change all that. Later, in her 20s, Mercedes became involved in the lesbian theater circles of Broadway. As a poet, playwright, and screenwriter, Mercedes is remembered for her love affairs with some of the most glamorous and famous women of all time, including Tallulah Bankhead, Greta Garbo, and Marlena Dietrich. She frequently boasted of her conquests, claiming, I can get any woman from any man. Mercedes was out about her lesbianism, but her conquests were not. That is, until she published her kiss-and-tell book, Here Lies the Heart. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, John DeBoer.
Hi, I'm Amanda Burse, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you are listening to IMRU Radio. And now, part two of Abby's interview with Ivy Botini. Feminist, artist, and LGBT activist Ivy Bottini is working on a memoir, a book which will span five decades of the fight for social justice. I asked her if, as she looked back, she noticed any recurrent themes. She recalled a pivotal moment as a young woman in art school when a teacher suggested an approach to effective lettering that would hold true for much more to come. One day he was lecturing, and he said... When you put your pen to paper, know where you want to go and go there. Don't think about it. Just go there. And then he said, and this requires you to get out of your own way. And I didn't think about it at the time, but it has resonated with me forever. It's sort of like I'm finally accepting that it's a mantra because it had such impact and I didn't even know it. And, and it's not that I'm aware that I'm getting out of my own way. I'm not aware I'm doing it, but I'm doing it. And it all goes back to that class. And when I was, I don't know, how old was I? 19, maybe 20. So do you know where you want to go? I want to go where life takes me. And that's the get out of your own way. And did you, and sort of looking back at major moments, like the founding of now or the beginning of the AIDS movement, did you know where you wanted to go? Not really. I just knew I wanted to be part of this tide that was moving. Individuals, as I've gone through my life, they have affected me in so many ways. It might be a sentence. It, it, it could be a sadness. And it captures my imagination and that some passion builds around it. And I can't work on things I'm not passionate about. Mm-hmm. I just can't. It's just, you know, two or three meetings and I'm out of there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in later years, maybe about 10, 15 years ago, I was reading uh, Joseph Campbell. And there's one thing that he wrote, you have to be willing to give up the life you plan to have the life that's waiting for you. And when I read it, I thought, oh, my God, that's how I've lived my life. I'd look upon everything pretty much as an adventure, even bad things. You know, even um, you get sick and it's an adventure. How are you going to get through it? But I guess I, quote, follow my bliss. I'm working now on two projects. One is an AIDS memorial for West Hollywood, and we're coming along. It will happen. Don't know where it's going to happen, but it, but it will And the other thing that I'm more passionate about, because the AIDS Memorial, we've got a good core group. And, you know, if I'm not there at every meeting, it's fine. But the other project is creating an LGBT museum. And it's going to be in Hollywood. It will focus on Southern California. It'll have a national overview and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But we're going to focus mainly on what Southern California activists in the LGBT movement the impact that we have had on on the country and the world. So I'm very, very passionate about that. Why? What makes you passionate about that? 
because it will be there for people to see and people won't be forgotten, you know, including myself. I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to at least having a line in there somewhere. But, you know, it will document how long we've been in the struggle and what people sacrificed to live their lives and the wins we've had and the losses but it'll, it'll go way back. When you talk to young people, when you meet young people, young activists, do you think they know? What's your sense of their awareness of what's come before? They don't know. They really don't know. And most of them don't care. There's a small handful of young activists that really care up and down the state. Uh, Robin McGeehee up in uh, Fresno. And there's Tom DeSimone here, Matt Palazzolo. I can't pull the names out of my mm-hmm. head, but, but there's, there's a cadre of young activists, and that gives me great hope. The night that Prop 8 went down, and all of a sudden, there were thousands of people on the street, and they were young. That moved me, too. It really yeah. surprised me. I was shocked. I, I sat in that chair watching the news crying because I thought, my God, there is life after the creation of huge organizations which killed the ground troops, the grassroots. And, I mean, the grassroots has been dead for 15 years or more. But that they showed up on that night, I had hope. I thought, okay, if I died tonight, there is hope. (laughs) So all those people that showed up, or even the people that couldn't get it together to show up, what would you like them to know? What would you like them, from, from all of your wisdom and experience, mistakes you've made, what would you like to implant into their minds, if you could? Okay. Uh, you got about eight hours. Well, well one, they, they really should explore our history. You know, it's not all about drinking and dancing. You know, not all about, you know, being lovers. It goes way beyond the personal into the political, because it is personal is political. I would urge them to learn our history and get involved somewhere and recognize that life isn't all about drinking and dancing. And I would, I would like the young gay guys coming up to understand what feminism can do for them. Uh, they have no idea. They think, oh, it's only about women, but it's not. It's about gay men. You know, the objectification that goes on in the gay community, the gay male community, I see it as so destructive to psyches. Uh, it may be fun, the objectification in the gay male world when they're young, but as they get older and the values change, they're not valued anymore. And it comes as a huge shock, and very painfully so. I've been saying for years since... 67 anyway, that gay men should join the women's movement because that's their salvation. It really is their salvation and their identity would change because when women's identity goes up and women's equality goes up, gay men will not be seen as something wrong because right now they're compared to women and so they're devalued. As women are devalued, so are the gay men. And they won't get it and it drives me crazy, just crazy. You know, and a lot of our uh, gay male politicians, you know, they think they're feminists. Um, They've learned to use the word, 
but they're really not. When they speak of history, they speak of gay male history. When they rattle off the names of all the the different groups, the bears, you know, the daddies, the the leather, when they rattle all of them off. And one politician, local politician, is very fond of doing that. And he, and he does about 30 of them. There's not one lesbian word in there that means woman. <laughs> Nothing. But at the same time, he'll say, but I'm a feminist. Well, he's not. He's a misogynist. And it comes out in all sorts of ways. This is Abby Dees and I'm talking with the amazing Ivy Bettini. What do you think we need to do to light a spark under our potential grassroots activists? We need another life or death issue. Like AIDS? Yeah. Yeah, which is sad, which is just sad. I was, I was looking at the years the other day, and from the suffrage movement to today, every 40 years, roughly 40, 41 years, women are under attack. It's like the powers can live with it for a while, and then we get too uppity. And then, bam. If you look at the dates, every 40 years. And we're in our 40th, 41st year. What do you think would have happened in our community if AIDS hadn't happened, in our communication with one another? Well, once I joined the um, now, Mm -hmm. in 66, uh, I did not realize that for the next 10 years, I did not deal with men at all. I was at odds with men, not all men, you know, but the legislators, the, you know, the people that had power over us in a meaningful way. You know, maybe you have a husband, he's an asshole. I, you know, right at the moment, I can't come to your house and do anything about it. But, you know, it it was what men do. It's Mm -hmm. not that I hate men, it's that I hate what they do. (laughs) That kind of quote. And it took Prop 6, the Briggs Initiative, to put me back into contact with men, gay men. And we work together very, very well. See, I don't think that we're cohesive now. I think that changed after the AIDS epidemic got under control. There are a lot of lesbians and dykes who will not come to West Hollywood. They will not. They won't set foot in the city because there's nothing here for them. And there really is nothing here for them. No, it really isn't. And do you think, is this one of those things where the young women aren't getting it or are just blasé about it? They're not even blasé. Do they notice? It's, it's all, they don't know how to confront. Confrontation isn't easy. We're not brought up that way. And there are times you have to confront. You just can't go along and hope people are going to not do that. You've got to take a stand, and it doesn't matter if everybody in the room hates you after you've spoken. You've got to do it, and that's what they can't seem to do. I'm wondering, knowing my sisters and knowing how also some years ago my sisters were a little more doctrinaire than they are now, did you get flack or criticism from other women for being so involved with things that could have been perceived as men's issues? I didn't realize it. But I find out now that that a lot of hardcore lesbians thought I was on some level a traitor. That's a strong word, but it's Mm -hmm. the only thing I can use. How did you come to find that out? Basically from Jean, my buddy Jean, Cordova. Several times we've been in conversation. We work on things together. And so several times we've been in conversation, and she'll say something like, 
Well, you've worked on the men's issue so long. Well, you know, the women didn't know what to do with you because you were over there working with men. And I, did, I had no clue, <laughs> absolutely no clue, because I knew in my head, I know I'm a feminist, I'm a lesbian, that is my first issue, that is my commitment, and there are other issues as a human being that I will try to help with in our community. So I had no idea that there was any resentment at all. You know, I'll, I'll bump into dykes, you know, at an event, and they're in their 50s or 60s. They'll come up to me and say, you know, um, I've watched you over the years and blah, 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 blah. But I've never seen them before. And I find myself wondering, am I okay with you now? You know, or, or do you still see me as um, being a turncoat or something? But I have to do what I have to do. If the gay men are in trouble with AIDS, you can't ignore that. How can you ignore that? How can you not work on it? And there were a whole bunch of lesbians who did work on it, and then there were a whole bunch of lesbians who wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. How could they do that? I, I don't get that. I just don't get that. Earlier in the interview, Ivy mentioned that she wouldn't mind being remembered in the LGBT museum she's helping create. So, of course, I had to ask, how would she like to be remembered? I'd like to be remembered that I saved lives, um, both psychologically and physically, because that's what I do. I work on issues that saves lives. That's a nice job description. This is Abby Dees, and I've been speaking with artist and activist Ivy Bettini. Abby's interview was conducted in Ivy's West Hollywood apartment, engineered by IMRU's executive producer Steve Pride at her dining room table. LGBTQ and feminist icon Ivy Botini passed away Thursday, February 25, 2021. She died peacefully at home, surrounded by her daughters, with her minister beside her reading the latest news in LGBTQ rights. The memoir Ivy mentioned evolved into a biography from Judith Brandsburg called The Liberation of Ivy Bottini, a memoir of love and activism. Tonight's last word is an audio essay from Abby Dees that I'm sure both Jean and Ivy would love. It happened again. Some friends asked my partner Tracy and me, is one of you like more the man in the relationship? This question doesn't upset me, but it's still weird. After all, I've always thought Tracy and I were pretty much on the same spot on the gender continuum. But people keep asking, is one of you the man? Here's what prompted it this time. I put pictures up on Facebook of Tracy and me at a she-she fundraiser. Tracy wore a print dress, and I wore black cigarette pants and a tailored blouse. We both wore makeup and heels, though if we're nitpicking, mine were just kitten heels. 
Now, there are any number of reasons why I wasn't wearing a dress, beyond the basic fact that my outfit totally rocked. Among those reasons, I'm deathly white, and legs, pantyhose, and suntan shade went out of style, if they ever were in style, in the 80s. Another reason is that I have a nasty scar on my shin from walking into a broken flower pot. And dresses give my rather cylindrical body a chintz-draped pink column look. Not included in this list is anything having to do with gender roles. But in fairness to my friends, they didn't ask just because of that one picture. They'd noticed that most of the time, when they see Tracy, she's in makeup and clothes straight from the dry cleaners. I'm usually in jeans. Maybe lipstick and sunblock. Maybe. So it's not so off the wall for them to wonder if there's something more to this than fashion. What's funny, though, is that they are as much flouters of traditional roles as we are, which is one of the things we love about them. In other words, they're a typical modern straight couple, two generations out from mandatory boy-girl conformity. What I get from this is a reminder of just how deeply worn the gender expectation grooves still are, even if real life has much more room for variety. Like, to me, more obvious questions about Tracy's and my personal style choices might be, Abby, are you a lazy, ADD-addled slug in the morning? Or, Abby, do you just not accept the fact that you're a grown-up now and should probably dress like one? I would have to answer yes to both those questions. But for the sake of argument, let's say that there is something to this question of Tracy's and my gender roles. After all, we're not any more immune to those expectations than my friends are. It's the model we all grew up with in some way or another about how couples are expected to interact. Is one of us more like a typical man or woman than the other? Honestly, I'd have to say yes. It looks like this. When it comes to heaving bags of fertilizer to the backyard and grumbling afterwards about how she shouldn't have done that to her back, Tracy's the man. When it comes to wiring a stereo or fixing the computer, I'm the man, and Tracy's the woman making endless suggestions over my shoulder that I try to ignore. When it comes to making charts of finances and household numbers, Tracy's the man, and I'm definitely the ditzy platinum blonde. But when it comes to picking up old socks and underpants from the floor and wondering if Tracy even notices, oh, I am so the woman. However, when it comes to being patient with a curling iron and mascara, Tracy's the total woman, and I'm the man, forever striving to bring my morning grooming ritual in under two minutes. And when it comes to emotional communication, Tracy's the monosyllabic man, and I'm the harumphing woman. But Tracy's still got those big, delicate, girly feelings. Does that answer the question? This is Abby Dees. And this commentary was based on my syndicated column, Thinking Out Loud, distributed by Q Syndicate. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you would like to volunteer with IMRU in any capacity, email stevepride at stevepride.com. And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can also hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. 
We close tonight with Helen Reddy singing I Am Woman, a cappella, at the 2017 Women's March in downtown L.A. Good night. I am woman, I hear me roar, in numbers too big to ignore, and I know too much to go back and pretend, cause I've heard it all before. And I've been down there on the floor And no one's ever gonna keep me down again Oh, yes, I'm wise But it's wisdom born of pain Yes, I paid the price But look how much I gained If I have to, I can do anything I am strong, I am invincible, I am woman. You can bend but never break me, cause it only serves to make me more determined to achieve my final goal. And I come back even stronger Not a novice any longer But you've deepened the conviction in my soul Oh yes, I'm wise But it's wisdom for the pain Yes, I paid the price But look how much I gained If I have to I can do anything. I am strong. Strong. I am invincible. Invincible. I am woman. Yeah. Helen Reddy, everyone. The legacy continues. You're invincible.